podcast one production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. Leaders are often trying to solve problems they've never encountered. In fact, most leaders talk about the loneliness of leadership and the pressure to exude confidence. Throughout this series, many of my guests have said great leaders have worked on their leadership skills by finding the right mentor or coach to help them along the way or up the ladder. Today's guest, Meredith Helicar, has been that guiding force for many of Australia's top performing executives. Now the executive chairman at Merck Co, Meredith strives to build future CEOs, directors and C-suite executives. And having had an extensive senior executive career herself, including several managing director and CEO roles with companies based in Australia, Asia, USA and Europe, she is really well placed to outline the challenges that will face leaders throughout their careers, as well as the common leadership mistakes she sees people in all industries making. Welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series, Meredith. Thanks, Helen. What did you experience as a leader in your career? Lots of different types of role models. You know, some absolutely fantastic, positive role models. Also some people who it was a privilege to watch so that I could learn how not to be as a leader. And I was really fortunate because coming through large businesses in the 80s, there was actually a lot of attention given at that time to leadership. It was mostly dealt with with formal training courses of various things. Um, But, you know, I feel really fortunate that I grew up with attention given to being a good leader because I come across clients now who've made it to be managing director of large global organisations and they've actually never had anything that approaches something that that develops their leadership skills as against their technical skills along the way. Your career is very interesting because you, you rose all the way to the top and quite quickly. Uh, and I've always felt that women who do that uh, in an era where it was very difficult to do it, had exceptional skill sets um, of some sort or another. What skills do you attribute to yourself? Understanding people. I think caring about people, understanding people, motivating people. I'm not the world's greatest strategic thinker. I'm not particularly innovative in, in, a, in a business sense. I just love working with people who are. And yeah, I, I was very sort of goal-oriented. I liked to bring clarity so to, to myself and to other people. Again, that doesn't mean um, you know, stick to stick to something regardless, but 
it's always important to me that I understand why are we doing something and and what's the outcome. I suppose that's another thing. I always look for outcomes rather than outputs because outputs can give you a false sense of achievement, whereas understanding the outcome um, is what drives us to work harder, drives us to achieve more, and I think ultimately is better for business. So, yeah, and I loved business. I left the Foreign Service because in those days it wasn't merged with trade and I just hated the way they thought of anything to do with trade or commerce as being almost, you know, dirty. <laughs> and, you know, I realised I I love the sense of harnessing people to produce something that is tangible and matters and and can contribute. It's heartening to know that there are people like you working behind the scenes to improve the leadership skills of our business leaders. Do you think it's important that if you're on that trajectory, you seek out the sort of training and insights that you offer? I think it's really beneficial for everyone to have their own board of advisors. Um, So not necessarily, well, in fact, I'd say not an individual, um, but a suite of people whom you consult, maybe different people for different aspects of your lives. But importantly, having at least one person who has no other agenda other than your success. And if they have no other agenda, then they have the willingness to challenge you to pose different points of view to really help you test out who you are and who you will be. So if I come to you um, for my first appointment, would I be right in assuming one of the first questions you might ask me is, what is my version of success? It will be, yes, yes. And everybody's version is different. And then we will spend a lot of time just exploring what that really means. And most people after they've thought about it and talked about it for a while, have a a more tapestried version of what their success is. So they might come in with, and off the top of their head, have a career goal. But, you know, we're dealing with human beings, human beings who have the whole of their life behind them, all the people in the room with them who have influenced their lives from family, friends, school, the other people they work with. And so actually understanding that and understanding what are your values as a result and therefore matching that with with what success could look like because often people haven't actually matched the two. Do you ever see someone and you go, I just don't want to work with that person, <laughs> I just don't like their values and I don't really relate to them and I don't want to spend lots of time yeah. with them and I don't want to see them successful? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we cert- yes, certainly I um, have met with people whom I don't wish to work with. Um, more often it's because they're not really up for the journey. So sometimes a chairman might ask me to work with the CEO and I'll go and meet with the CEO and they're just saying yes because the chairman suggested it. Um, So that's more often the case because if they're not really up for the hard work and the self-reflection, then there's no point. But yes, sometimes it's because I just see values are incredibly important to me and if there's a clash of values, then what, what is the point? They won't want to work with me either. Not that mentoring is imposing 
your will at all on people. You know, your job is to hold the mirror up and to challenge and question. But ultimately, it is also using your own experience to help them make decisions. And if if my own values and experience aren't relevant, then it's not going to help them. Can we talk gender for a minute? Do you train men and women in equal volumes? Sadly, I have far more male clients than females because working with CEOs and C-suite executives, statistically, they're more males. Our um, corporate clients are often the females who, you know, are running HR. And one thing I do say increasingly to them is, why aren't you offering this to yourself? No, it's a it's a wonderful investment for an organisation to invest in an individual by giving them a mentor and coach, and yet so seldom does the head of people actually get that opportunity, and yet they are incredibly key to the success of the organisation. If the CEO doesn't have in their head of people somebody who really can be that internal mentor and coach to them and the executive team who can think strategically about the people needs to meet the strategy of of the organisation, who can think what is going to unleash the power of the staff, then the business can't succeed. It can have all these wonderful technical experts in the subject matter of the business, but it can't succeed without empowering the people. It surprises me that you would have a lot of male clients and that's only because I assume that a a male client would want a a male mentor or coach. No, no, actually, mostly gender doesn't come into it, but occasionally somebody will say, I think it will be good for him to have a female. Um, Have a female. Have a female (laughs) or or vice versa. Mm. Um, But mostly gender doesn't come into it. I think the biggest single determinant of the success of a mentoring relationship is the chemistry between the two people. So in our organisation, I speak with whoever was the person that reached out. And sometimes it can be the individual themselves, but if it's if it's the CEO or the chair or the head of HR, I'll have a conversation with them about the needs. Then I will always have what we call a casting meeting with the individual, and that's the time when I'll seek out are they really committed to, to mm. doing it, but also just understand how they operate and then think, well, which of our mentors do I think would most likely match with them? And then they have a chemistry meeting to really test out out the chemistry because unless that's right, the individual won't feel that they can truly open up. And if you can't truly open up to your mentor and um, really talk about your own vulnerabilities, you know, your fears, your hopes, et cetera, then you can't have as successful a relationship as you could have. What do you look for in someone that, you know, you just know is going to go a long way? In no particular order, ambition, not necessarily personal ambition, but ambition for the organisation, ambition for a purpose. You know, there are certainly people who haven't realised that they have so many innate leadership qualities uh, and therefore don't necessarily have ambition for, you know, I want that role. 
But if they don't have an ambition to achieve and and ensure that the area they are involved in is is outperforming what people thought they might be able to do, then um, I think that would that would be a gap. I would say people who are curious, who listen, who challenge, um, people who are don't necessarily accept the status quo. Um, and again, all these things have flip sides. Um, you know, you have to learn how to play on the team well. Um, so again, people who are are team players who understand that helping their peers is as important as helping the people that that work for them. Depending on the nature of the business, obviously, again, I call these the stable ta- table stakes. You know, they've got to um, have a co- commercial mindset, a customer mindset, a, an interest in what are the levers for this business, what's driving the business, who are the stakeholders, um, people who have peripheral vision. You, know, you can be somebody who can be fabulous in one narrow role with one narrow team and that's will get you to a certain extent. But um, if I were looking at people at a younger age and thinking, oh, I wonder if they'll make it all the way to the top, it's having that peripheral vision to bring the outside in, understand what's going on in the community, you know, with your customers, with your consumers, with your stakeholders, with the people that you know, are in the community in which the business operates. So it's starting to to think big, aim big and believe self-belief, again, not to be confused with certainty, but I think it's, um, you know, that starts to, to show up at a fairly young age if people are putting up their hands to, to do projects that they might be a bit scared of, but they think, you know, there's that, wonderful phrase that um, one of the YouTubers, um, Sarah's Day uses, act confident and no one will question you. Mm. It's not, you know, thinking unrealistically, oh, I, you know, I'll be brilliant at this, but it is saying, wow, this will stretch me and it'll discomfort me and people who will then put up their hands to do something that they really are a bit scared of. I think that's just great insight. Um, what about the reverse of that? What qualities do you look at and say... If you don't get that bit of your characteristics or your trait or your leadership, you know, um, skill set sorted out, you're never going to go anywhere. Well, I'm sounding a bit like a broken record, but if you can't, if you can't be on a team, it just doesn't work. If you can't have that one com- one organisation ambition, that notion that the team I'm part of is my first team. In fact, that's one of the things when we're working with senior executive teams that they comes as a surprise to some of them. They think the team they lead is their number one team, but no, it's the team you're part of. And if people don't have that sense, if it's all about me, I'm in the limelight, um, I get the credit, that sort of behaviour, thankfully, I think is is now being weeded out and and people just don't progress. What is the most basic mistake a leader can make? Not listening, I think, probably. And and perhaps the flip side of that is not being curious. It is quite interesting how many leaders, as they have had to progress through the organisation, grow in certainty. And certainty is quite a dangerous uh, attribute. Um, so uh, 
it's understandable how that could happen because as a leader, you also have to project confidence, you have to sell the vision, the purpose for the organisation. So you you do have to project confidence, but I think don't don't confuse that with being certain and don't ever feel that you're, you're the sole repository of the great ideas because the great ideas are all, all around you. So I think that's that's the one that most hits me in the face about leaders. One of the challenges, I think, in leading a big team and getting listening right is that is that balance between checking in, being aware of the pressures on your team members, uh, caring, and just not having the time to do that. How do you, what advice do you give leaders who've got big teams who really crave um, the attention of their boss? We all make time for the things that are important to us. And so sometimes it's a matter of helping a leader understand the value for everyone of investing that time in the team as a whole and in the individual members of the team. And again, it's a bit like dieting and exercise. We can see the good and we can change the mindset. So that's why um, it's where a mentor and coach comes in, where you know, you're not only somebody that helps them understand the value of doing some things that they have either neglected or not enjoyed, but you're there as the nag to test how they're going with it, to have some enforced self-reflection about, well, how did that work out and what was the response? And I mean, the great joy is that one can see the impact, impacts so quickly of investing time and attention um, caringly in people. And that doesn't mean, don't confuse that with, you know, niceness. It's good for the business as well to understand how your people So tick. put a, um, a diary note, you know, Wednesday, 11 a.m., call a member of the team and check up on them like well, you would book a Pilates absolutely, class. Absolutely. So um, David Morgan, when he was the CEO of Westpac, and he was not known to be a particularly empathetic person, he would have in his diary, you know, do something spontaneous on level three today. No and, way. And his EA would be charged with, you know, thinking about what that would be and how it would be. So, you know, it, having personal development chats with your people are incredibly important and they actually sh- should be in the diary for both of you, um, so not you know, not on that spontaneous basis. But, yeah, it's really important that we have uh, a discussion with each of our team members at certain intervals about how they think they're going, what are the things that are troubling them, what are they seeing that's outside their direct area, you know, testing their peripheral vision, testing their personal resilience, testing their concerns, their hopes, talking about their career. I mean, I've seen people that are really good at that, but they almost, that becomes the thing they do. Uh, You know, they're great building a team and the team loves them, but other things go by the wayside because, you know, they they prioritise the internal survey that says they've got the happiest team, you know. So. <laughs> ah, yes. Well, happiness is uh, an interesting measure. Um, look, it's a, it's a both end, you know. You can't, uh, 
people will fail if they only look at the financial results and they will fail if they only look at the, the people results. You have to do it all and that's why they are demanding jobs, they are time-consuming jobs, they are emotionally um, draining jobs because you have to do it all and where you know you're not good at one aspect of it, then you need to find somebody who will do it for you or or help push you into doing it if no one else can do it but you. But that's another thing. Only do what you can do. Don't try and do everyone else's jobs for them. What is the most common conversation you have with someone you're mentoring? Like the most common problem that future or current leaders have in the workplace? It generally is about people. Um you know, it's fascinating. Um, when people are at the, those senior levels, they occasionally do want to talk about some aspect of the strategy or some particularly thorny business issue. But if I were to look at the most common conversation, because organisations are just microcosms of society. Some people can talk about office politics and, you know, will we engage in it or not? Well, it's not a choice. An, an organisation is society and society is political. You have to work well and understand how to release people so, uh, or people's power and, and, and their ability to achieve at their best. So it's generally a people thing. It may well be with a CEO about the board and what's happening at, at board level or what's happening with the chair. There is always someone on their team who is troubling them. Um, and contrary to popular belief about, um, you know, the ruthlessness of people in business, I would say one of the most common things is they hang on to the wrong people for too long out of a misguided sense of loyalty or giving them the chance or, you know, whatever the reasons are. So sometimes it really is a matter of having that tough conversation. It's, it's not all about how do I make everyone else happy. It's how do I make the whole performance its best by how I deal with people individually and collectively. That is such an interesting observation because our audience of young women who are just starting out often in their leadership roles, where office politics really starts to come into play and where they start to first hit challenges of uh, the juggle at home, being heard in a meeting, and and then the criticism that comes with taking leadership positions. And tackling those staffing issues are often the things that keep most of them awake at night. If I can summarise your advice around a problematic staff member, be prepared to move quickly. Is that is that what you're... Or decisively. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Don't hang on past what needs to be what needs to be done. I do have a theory that when really good people are not doing what you expect them to do persistently, try thinking that they actually don't know how to do it first before you actually think, you know, they're being stubborn or you know, lazy or whatever else. I learned that when I was CEO of Cause, you know, you have all these incredibly bright lawyers. Um, but none of them at any level had ever actually really led um, a business line. And so uh, some of the things that I just thought were completely second nature to me, you know, like 
how do you touch your nose with a finger? It was just foreign to them. And, um, you know, so learning to think, well, you know, they're great people, they've, they've wanted these roles, why isn't X happening? Well, actually try and help them talk through what they're facing and, and, and get them to open up that they actually don't know how to do it and give that the try. So I do think that you can do a lot more to help people succeed. But, you know, sometimes people just are in the, in the wrong jobs. And it is really hard when you first move up into that supervisory role. Um, you know, you've got all those issues about leading the people that you used to be friends with, um, you know, dealing with all that comes with that, um, making those decisions about about people. Um, it's tough and it's a really tough stage to have and, and some people make the decision, leadership is not for me because if you can't or won't deal with people, particularly um, these days, um, I'd like to think, frankly, that you won't progress I think we've had, we all know people who've reached the top of organisations who can't deal with people who've been appalling leaders and they've just got there because they have driven through results in some ways. But even those people have tended not to not to last long. But in this day and age when people have at last understood the value of, of releasing the power and energy of your staff, um, if you can't feel comfortable doing that, then, yeah, leadership's not for you. One of the um, things I, I can never get out of my head when I have this sort of conversation is working in the city uh, and working with a lot of women and I won't name the space, et cetera, but you come out of the office at about four o'clock on a Thursday or a Friday afternoon and it would be heaving downstairs with men drinking, having beers. Uh, there wouldn't be any women or very few women. And I would think, what are they all doing? And you know what they're doing. You know that the women are in the office either doing the work or have rushed time to pick up the kids and are cooking dinner. And yet the men have somehow quite, you know, understandably to them, gone for a couple of beers after yep. work or even in work hours. Mm. And that's just not a luxury that any woman who wants to get ahead has actually got, I don't think. And no. that's, a, that's a real challenge because they're networking. Yep. So, that, so that brings me to networking. Do you see that as critical to leadership and success or can we get by without being a networker? Well, let's talk about what networking really means in the sense that you've just described it. Yes, I think we can get by without it. And in fact, I think it's increasingly disappearing and probably COVID has helped it. It will continue to disappear, hopefully, if again, we as society take a more um, embracing view of the gender roles. So, you know, you talk about, yes, the women are either in the office doing the work or they've raised home to pick up the kids. Occasionally when a male does that, everyone in the office goes, oh, isn't he wonderful? And when a woman does it, it's, oh, she's not dedicated. The wonderful Catherine Fagg used to use the phrase in talking to young women about leave loudly instead of, and we've all done it, slinking out, um, you know, and and because you don't want anyone to think you're not dedicated but you have to get to the childcare centre before six o'clock, um, you know, leave loudly. And she as a leader used to used to do that and I think it's really important. And certainly I encourage 
um, male leaders to do that as well. Not so that people say, oh, aren't you wonderful? You're going off to coach your son's soccer, but so that you can normalise the fact that I can be really dedicated to my job and um, also do these other, you know, things in my home and care about my home. I'd, I think, again, that COVID may have helped a whole range of males see a little more about the value of being at home. I'm sure there's a small portion of both males and females who've said, God, the faster I can get back in the office, the better. But I think people will, again, change. So we have to, as society, change the roles. Then if that happens, then networking in that old-style sense won't count. But let's not kid ourselves again. We The organisations are human societies and you will not get on in an organisation if you sit in a corner and think, if I hand my homework in on time and I do my job per- perfectly, that I will get promoted because you have to network to be be part of the team. You have to get exposure. And so I'd say think about networking in a different way. Think about it as if I put up my hand to work on this project, it's going to mean I get to work with A, B and C over the other side of the organisation. I get to um, learn from other people. I get to show other people what I can do. So, you know, being strategic about um, who you are exposed to and can work with is a much more productive form of, of networking. And equally, if it's not in the organisation that you're, um, you know, in at the moment that you want to somehow, you know, work in in the future, then finding a way of engaging with that organisation, um, but with some sort of serious intent. You know, I'd, I'd like to think that the days of going along to some Christmas drinks on the off chance that you'll meet Joe who will say, well, come and work for me, um, you know, has gone. But there are all sorts of ways including just ways I can remember when I was on a, um, a major board, um, a new graduate um, came up to me at some women's function that they'd asked me to speak at, and she'd literally been in the organisation for six months since leading uni- leaving university. And she bowled up to me and, and said, um, will you be my mentor? <laughs> And we are still in touch today. And I still That could have see gone her. either way. <laughs> and well, it could have, but <laughs> you know, what would I say when somebody young and enthusiastic and brimming full of energy comes and says, Will you be my mentor? No one's going to say no. And, you know, again, she's up for the work. <laughs> and and, you know, I love my sessions with her because um, you know, she is always up for the work. Many of our listeners are young women just starting out on their careers. What advice do you have for them in terms of getting the sorts of leadership advice you offer senior um, business leaders? And at what point do you need to get that help, do you think? I think having advisors start, or the need to have advisors starts right from the beginning of your career. And my daughter started her first job at the beginning of this year, and one of the pieces of advice I gave her is watch, see who you think is doing things really well, and then find a way to um, have a um, a meeting with them. And you know, she 
she's reported back to me about a meeting she had with somebody where you know she had a few pe- few suggestions and she took the courage to go and and instigate a meeting with him and it wasn't like he was she didn't go to the chairman of the company or whatever but she went to somebody a few rungs up and um you know she offered some suggestions and asked some advice so i think pick out people who you think are going to be good role models and um approach them the worst that they can say is i haven't got haven't got time I suppose some old-fashioned ones might say, who are you? <laughs> you know, mostly, but it doesn't happen very often. No, and again, people love mm. giving advice. They love being asked. But the one thing I would also say is there's a, a, um, a bit of a feeling that young women can be over-mentored and under-sponsored and a, a catch-all for organisations can be, you know, oh, yes, we'll get you know, we'll get women these coaches so they'll learn how to fit in. You know, I get so furious because it's not about changing the women. It's about working as an organisation. So I would say, yes, have some people whose advice you admire. Do not talk to everyone. Um, Again, we're very sociable creatures and sometimes we will then go and tell all and sundry about something we are struggling with. You know, so I'd say no Pick your confidants wisely, use them wisely, but also uh, don't neglect finding sponsors. And sponsors are people who have positional power who can influence your career and your promotion. And that comes back to my thing of, you know, put your hand up for projects, do those sorts of things. I think when you're younger, um, joining an organisation such as yours is fantastic because I think... Um, they then get the benefit of people coming in and, you know, speaking to them. They get the benefit of podcasts. You know, there's so much that can help people um, where you can sit back and it's rather comforting to think, oh, my God, I'm not the only one that's going through that. So um, we don't need to have the individualistic advice all the time. Um, We just need to know that we're not peculiar, that we're not alone um, and get sometimes some some generalised advice. Just that leadership lens, you know, just start to think about how you project your um, public image and your, and how you relate to your colleagues, all those sorts of things that we just sort of take for granted. We go through school and go through uni and next thing, um, but that's all changed quite dramatically yeah. and no one's really told us how to navigate it. No, and I think I, I guess the one piece of advice I'd also say is if you do have your eye on a particular role that you would like next, start acting as you would in that role. It's a practical version of affirmation. So, you know, I don't believe that because you want something, you'll get it. But I think if you want people to see you as ready for that role, start behaving in ways that will be identified as having that role. Should you signal that you want the role? Should you actually say, my ambition, I'm a 25-year-old, should you say, my my ambition is to be the Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs? Yes. And in fact... There's a, um, I forget what the uh, ABC program was that was being done in back in when I was a trainee in foreign affairs and I got asked to be interviewed for it. And somewhere in the bowels of the ABC is apparently me saying, yes, I my ambition is to be an ambassador or a secretary of the department. And I think it's really important that people stamp their ambition um, 
properly um, and and openly. Um, I completely agree, but I was I made all the mistakes there, that there are to make in um, my career, and one of them was to pretend that I didn't want those roles uh, because I didn't want people to think, think you that, were up yourself. Correct. Yes. <laughs> yes. Again, there are going to be people that you say that to who get defensive. You know, mm. if you say it to your immediate boss and they start to feel like you're going to, um, you know, take their role, you know, yes, there's a risk. But I think if you're working for that sort of boss, you don't want to be anyway. Um, and so I can't see the downsides. Be realistic, um, but don't go the other way and and into your ambition. You can always couch it in, you know, my aim is to be here. What are the experiences that I need to have in order to get there? One of the challenges, though, um, is that you you don't... I remember having a conversation with um, someone senior in media and he asked me whether I'd like to take a very senior role and it had never occurred to me. So my initial reaction was, I, I, I don't know, which he assumed was no. So... Um, by the time I followed up, he'd moved on. But it's just, it's another its another thing um, for women to be aware of is not to limit your ambition or your peripheral vision, to use your earlier phrase, because there are more possibilities than you have ever potentially oh, been told about yes. or grasped. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you, you asked me earlier about, you know, What's one of the first questions I ask people? Well, one of the things that I will talk about in the first session or raise is what what is your ambition? Um, what's your career ambition? And when people say, "Oh, I don't know," you know, I'm happy with the job. <laughs> um, I'm that particularly person. Particularly with young people, you know, <laughs> you say no. Um, that's great if that is what you want. And, you know, there are, thank goodness, there are a ton of people who work to live and they do not want the responsibility, the hours, the whatever else of leadership, that's fantastic. But if you feel you want it or, you know, I will always say keep optionality. My daughter will always say, oh, mum, you're always saying keep your options open. But, you know, <laughs> you, you, you should. And if you think you want it, then start living it, start working towards it and start, start declaring it. And, you know, people can't judge you to be better than you judge yourself. And so we have to um, make sure we are projecting that, am- that ambition. Meredith Hilliker, I can see why you are the chosen mentor and career coach um, for so many of this country's leaders. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks, Helen. I've really enjoyed the discussion. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe and produced in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer, Jenny Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson.